All right, let's go Psalm 67. Psalm 67. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the text up on the screens behind me. That's a pretty picture back there. I like that. Can we also get the lights up when we get a chance? Uh, Psalm 67. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Actually, it's up there now. Um, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room. Uh, so if you prefer that route, please, please grab one of those. They're in the little racks underneath the seats. Uh, like, we love the convenience of it being on the screen, but at the end of the day, I think there's something special about holding God's Word in your hand and seeing it with your own eyes instead of through some device. And uh, screens are great, but they can also be a distraction sometime, right? And so, uh, so we value God's Word here. We believe it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. And, and God can do that through the screen, but man, there's just something special about the physical Bible. And I say all that to say this. Uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one. Seriously, it, it, we'd call it a win for you to take a Bible home and start reading it. And so uh, we believe it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation and, and those kinds of things. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that Bible home. Uh, Psalm 67. So we called a time out for a few weeks to talk about some stuff that we value around here, uh, some stuff that we claim to value, stuff that we claim to be chasing after that defines who we are. Uh, the, the more technical term would be our mission statement. All right? And so we've spent the last couple of weeks so far talking about our mission statement and why we value what it is that we claim to value. All right? And so um, we, uh, we have been talking about mission statement stuff. And so if you're new here, our mission statement is that we want to be a church that knows God, that loves one another, and y'all are getting better at this. We want to be a church that knows God, that loves one another, and that serves in the world. And a couple weeks ago, we said that our statement, at least for us, at least for us, maybe not be true of other places, but at least for us and what we feel we're going to give an account before God on, our mission statement is nothing more than the next step down the line to help us measure our accomplishment of the Great Commission. Right? That it gives us language by which we can kind of lay a grid on, well, how do we do that that Jesus has called us to do? Now, again, if you're new, Great Commission is a term that you may not be familiar with. It's found in Matthew 28. I know I just heard, told you to turn to Psalm 27, but let's talk about it real quick. Do we have it up on the screen? Matthew 28? If not, we can just quote it. Jesus gathers his disciples together right before he ascends into heaven. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been... That's not... That's supposed to be verse 18... Anyways, all authority is on heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I have taught you to observe, and baptizing the name the name, them in the name of the Father. I just butchered that bad. <laughs> baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have taught you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. <laughs> okay, the pastor should have gotten that one faster. All right, so, Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven, Tells his disciples, okay, you now have one job to do. Go make other followers of me. And teach them to obey everything I've taught you to obey. That to be a follower of Jesus, we said, is to be someone who makes other followers of Jesus. We, we say it lots of different ways around here. We, you have been reconciled in order to be a reconciler. We say it sometimes as, the church only has one job to do, right? No matter what your personality or your outlook on life, we've got different ways to kind of frame it. But pastors and theologians just call it the Great Commission. Jesus, the one we call Lord, commissioned us for a specific task, right? The church has one job to do, and it doesn't matter how you frame it, it's just the job. And so we've been showcasing for the last couple of weeks now ways that we 
here at National Baptist Church measure how we're doing on the making disciples of all nations thing. We said that we want to be a church that knows God because we think that's important. We want to be a church that loves one another. We want to be a church that serves in the world. And a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about the knowing God part, right? We looked at uh, uh, Matthew 7, uh, a section of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching all these different things. And uh, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gathers his his disciples together and he's, he's closing up this kind of sermon of all these different things he's talking about. And uh, he, he frames the idea of, of healthy trees and diseased trees. So we said a couple of weeks ago that that one of the reasons why knowing God is important to us is because at the end of the day, that's the only context that making disciples can happen in. That you can't produce healthy fruit from diseased trees is the picture that Jesus paints. So we want to know God because, well, we're not going to do very well with the making disciples of all nations part unless we do, right? It can't happen. You can't produce healthy fruit from diseased trees trees but Jesus keeps going in that sermon and, and after he talks about diseased trees versus healthy trees he goes in this little section where he has this warning for people who do really really good at all this outside stuff he says his actual words were many will say to me on that day Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and what was Jesus's response to them depart from me you workers of lawlessness I never knew you what we said a couple weeks ago is that we can be absolutely great at the loving one another and serving in the world stuff, but at the end of the day, Jesus either knows who we are or he doesn't, right? Jesus either knows our name or he doesn't. So what we said a couple weeks ago is that we want to value knowing God because at the end of all of this, that's the only one that actually matters. Like the other stuff are things that help us do stuff, but the knowing God piece is the only one that actually gets us in the door with him, Right? Literally, that's what he says. The knowing God part is the only one that gets us in the door. So not only is that the only context where we can make disciples, that's the only context where we are disciples. But there was a third reason. We said that we want to value knowing God because that's the context that our other values are actually sustainable in. So after Jesus talks about healthy trees versus diseased trees, and after he talks about not knowing some people who did some spiritual-sounding things but didn't actually know him, after he does that, he closes out this Sermon on the Mount by talking about, he paints this analogy of, of things being built on rocks versus sand, right? And so what we said is that it doesn't matter what you build, doesn't matter how well you build it, it's either on a foundation of Jesus or it's on something that won't last, Right? That's Jesus' point in that little word picture that he crafts for his listeners there and therefore, therefore for us. And so what we said was that knowing God is the only context where loving one another and serving in the world actually has any legs under it, right? Because eventually the wind's going to blow and the flood, flood waters are going to rise. And the wind's going to beat against that house, right? And in that moment, the thing that we've built is either founded on knowing God or it's founded on something that is going to get torn to pieces, right? So we said a few weeks ago that we value knowing God because of lots of reasons. And JB, last week, helped us understand uh, why we value loving one another. And man, we were all over the Bible, right? Those of you who were here last week, JB took us to like 12 or 13 different texts, I think I counted. I may be wrong. That may be an exaggeration, but it felt like it, all right? So he was all over the place, and it helped us to see that, that loving one another is not just this isolated command that happens one place in the scriptures. No, it's all over the place, right? The Bible is saturated with love one another commands. 
It's not plucked out of a thing for a convenient piece of theology. No, it's, it's a major tenet of the scriptures, right? But it also is a command that we learned that originates outside of us. Do you remember that last week? We don't love because we see the value in other things. We love because we have first been loved, right? Like, that doesn't mean we don't see the value in other things. But that's, not the, that's not the thing in the driver's seat, is it? Because what happens when the thing that, that's supposed to be beloved doesn't have a lot that's worthy of love? What if the thing that you beloved or, or need to love is actually really difficult to love? Don't we all know people like that? See, if, if we love because we see value, because we see something, well, eventually we're going to find ourselves in a circumstance where we don't feel like loving and it's kind of difficult to love and it's, well, they haven't really earned it anyways. But no, 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 no. Scriptures call us to love because we have first been loved. It's a reactionary love that pours out of, just explodes out of us because of the depth of love that we have been shown, right? JB helped us understand that last week. We love Jesus. We love others because Jesus loved us even when there was nothing lovely in us. JB also taught us that we love one another because at the end of the day, that's how the world will know that we are his disciples. Right? We looked at John 13, one of the 13-ish hundred texts that we looked at. We looked at John 13 and Jesus in the, the Lord's Supper setting and uh, right before he goes to the garden and then goes to the cross and all these kinds of things in the Lord's Supper setting, Jesus has this little moment where he washes the disciples' feet and he says, hey, I have loved you and a new command that I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, right? But what does he say that's for? So that the world will know that you are my disciples, right? See, even the command to love one another is really about accomplishing the Great Commission, isn't it? It doesn't exist just for itself. It's, it's about pointing the world to an outside glory, right? It's not so that the world can see, hey, hey, we're a really nice little close-knit community here and we really get along and we help each other out. No, those things exist and those things are good and those things you ought to be chased after, but the reason why love one another exists, it's not for us, right? So last week, J.B. helped us see that the command to love one another is really the command to make disciples of all nations, Right? Y'all ready to talk about why we serve in the world? Psalm 67. Psalm 67. So the little superscript above verse 1 says, To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the psalms are kind of unique uh, when you talk about style of scripture and what they do and what they're for. Uh, they're intended, they're a bunch of poems, a collection of poems intended to be sung in a public worship gathering. That creates some things in the way you see the psalms, right? It's not, it's not this narrative thing. It's not a, a list, of, a diatribe list of laws or anything like that. It's, it's poetry on the page, all right? And so there's, there's all of this 
crazy stuff going on in the Psalms. And, and there, there are multiple authors. Most of them are written by King David uh, at some point during his life, but there's a bunch of other authors. Like there's some, some by a guy named Asaph, and there's some others by a group of people called the sons of Korah. And there's even one, Psalm 90, written by Moses, which is really cool. All right? uh, and because it's this collection of po- poetry, like any good collection of poetry, it's just kind of all over the place emotionally. You ever actually picked up a poetry book? I know most of you have it. <laughs> I should take that joke back. All right. <laughs> no, any good collection of poetry is going to kind of be all over the place, right? Kind of almost schizophrenic-like, all right? And so you're going to have these eruptions of joy, and then you're going to have these really debasing laments, and you're like not sure if the person is bipolar or not, all right? And so that's kind of what's going on in the Psalms. But Psalm 67 is a good one. It's a happy one. We're not talking about anything uh, really depressing today. Uh, it's also a psalm that we don't know who the author is. It doesn't have an author attributed to it. Maybe David? I don't know. Just Psalm 67. In this collection of poetry intended to be sung in worship, let's look at verse 1 real quick. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So the psalmist here starts out by asking God to do something uh, that... You probably ask God to do whenever you pray to him. I don't know what your spiritual background is. Uh, To ask God to bless is something that we've kind of all been in the driver's seat on, right? We've asked God to bless. This psalm starts out like something you probably prayed. This psalm starts out like something you probably sung before. This psalm starts out like a lot of other psalms start out. God, would you bless? God, would you bless, right? And it's good theology too, right? God is the one who gives. God is the one who blesses. To see his face is to be a blessing, right? That's good theology. We ought to ask God to do that stuff. But verse 1 doesn't end in a period. At least not in our translation. It ends in a comma, right? Which means there's two thoughts connected together here, aren't there? So what does verse 2 say? All right, let's look at verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, comma, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. So the purpose of uh, our psalm writer, at least in this moment, is to say, hey, God, would you bless, would you bless, would you show us your face so that the world will know who you are. So that the world will see your glory. Literally, he says that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among how many nations? All nations. And this is a recurring theme in the Bible, just like the love one another commands, right? We've looked at this idea in a couple of different places. Most notably, though, in the life of Abraham. Hold your finger in Psalm 67. We're going to come back to it and turn to Genesis 12. It's all the way to your left, just about, if you're new to the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Find the big number 12, and you're there. Genesis 12. Um, so, Abraham is by no means a moral all-star. All right? In case you're just brand new to Christian thought and theology and to the Bible itself, or maybe you've been around it for years and you've just never re- really actually read the life of Abraham. Abraham's kind of a train wreck. I mean that in the technical sense. All right. Abraham, before he meets God, before he meets God, 
is an idolater, a pagan idolater, and he comes from a land that, that always plays the role of the bad people in the Bible, Babylon. Like the, you never see Babylon in the good way. They're always the bad guys. Abraham comes from that place. God calls him out of that place, right? Abraham is a pagan idolater who comes from the nasty, wicked, bad place before he meets God. After he meets God, he may actually be worse. Seriously. After he meets God, boy, is yellow-bellied, fearful as all get out. There's a couple of times that he's traveling through a foreign kingdom and he thinks his wife is pretty enough that the king is going to kill him and take his wife. And so he essentially sells his wife into sex slavery twice. Now, both times God protected him in that and made sure nothing sinful happened to his wife and they protected his wife. And, and then this, there's this weird scenario in both occasions where uh, they find out that he's actually married to this lady and the king gives her back. And, and then so nothing happens sexually. But there's also this moment where the king like gives him stuff and says, hey, just get out of our land. This almost went bad, right? And so God protects that. But do you think that Sarah never brought it up? How's that going for Abraham around breakfast? <laughs> Follow me. Even, even the yellow belly part is nothing compared to the fact that he's, in a, he's also an adulterer. So those, those of you who know your Bible well, Sarah gave him permission. Doesn't work that way. Abraham's, Abraham is an absolute train wreck before he meets God and after he meets God. But look what happens in Genesis 12. Look at verse 1. This is their first encounter together. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram was his name before God changed it to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation." and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so um, God calls Abraham out and tells them that he's going to be a bless, that he's going to bless Abraham. And he's going to bless him immensely, right? He's going to bless him in a financial way, and he's going to bless him in a familial way. He, in other words, he's going to give him lots of stuff, and he's going to give him a big old family, right? He says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to heap my blessing upon you. But here's a newsflash. It's not because Abraham earned it, is it? Like, is anybody going, he had that one coming. God, he was, God was really indebted to Abraham's faithfulness, right? No, Abraham has no faithfulness. Abraham, Abraham didn't earn this. We live in a culture that's far more influenced by animism than we like to believe, don't we? The idea that when you do good, God blesses, and when you do bad, God curses. Don't we? Don't we? Well, like, we never say that out loud. But we also have phrases like, must be living right. Don't we all kind of fall into the rut sometimes of thinking God's going to make the way easy for those of us who are walking in faithfulness and give cancer to those who are 
being mean or maybe want him to do those things. Our culture, the world we live in, is far more influenced by animism than we like to believe, right? The problem with that is the Bible, right? The problem with that is the Bible. Karma and the scriptures are diametrically opposed worldviews. They can't exist together. They have absolutely nothing in common. God's not bestowing blessing on Abraham or anybody else as a way of rewarding Abraham for his faithfulness. Abraham has no faithfulness. This is literally their first encounter. Genesis 12 tells us that God blesses Abraham so that every ounce of that blessing would be turned around and be a blessing to others, doesn't he? It's given so that it can be turned around and given down the line. God says that through that blessing, he will go on to bless all the nations of the earth. So back to Psalm 67. Verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth. Sound familiar? Your saving power among all nations. Verse three, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So the psalm right here is picking up a theme that's existed literally in the entire Bible, right? It, it's, it's showing us, I can point to how it shows its face in the garden, but listen, we just talked about Genesis 12, right? So the patriarch of the patriarchs, right? So this is a theme throughout the entire scriptures that God blesses in order for us to turn around and be a blessing. God blesses so that his name will ultimately be the one that's made great, right? Verse four, let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you, God, judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse six, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. He says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. There is a level of gratitude going on there that's a little bit deeper than surface level, right? Like we've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old at the house right now. Uh, we are training them to say thank you. Anybody else walk through that? Yeah, you know. So that little verbal elbow comes out all the time. Say thank you, thank you, thank you. Is anybody shocked to learn that my kids don't always respond the way you want them to respond? You're not shocked? I thought you would feel like I was a terrible parent. Can I just confess to you? I don't have it figured out. I know I can feel your judgment, right? My kids almost never respond the way I want them to respond. Still we prod. Say thank you. We want to train that in them, right? There are, there are lots of moments that I that I watch my kids, where we prod them, try to train them to say thank you, train them to feel gratitude for something, and it's very obvious that they don't. It's just written all over their face, right? Thank you. Thank you. Your kids never did that, right? You never did that either, did you? Hit a little too close to home there. Haven't we all been in circumstances where we, where we 
knew we needed to feel gratitude for something and we kind of had to force it because we didn't really have gratitude for something. Liars, every one of you. <laughs> the difference between my kids and me is that they, they don't have the filters yet and the social mores yet to know that they have to, right? But you know what I would absolutely adore in my kids? Not the surface level, thank you, with a smile on their face instead of a groan, but actual genuine gratitude, right? Like to be handed something and to see its goodness and go, thank you, <laughs> right? I would love to see that out of my kids. We all understand Every last one of us, whether we've got kids or we don't, every last one of us understands that there's a gigantic difference. There's a divide between forced gratitude and genuine gratitude. Hear me, church. There's also a divide between genuine gratitude and leaping, singing for joy. Right? Psalmist here says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Oh, let them sing for joy. Let there be an explosion of joy among all the peoples because of who you are and what you have done. The psalm writer here says that as a response to seeing who God is and what God has done, there should be an eruption of how great is our God? How great is he? Isn't he incredible? Isn't he magnificent? Let us sing because you judge the peoples with equity. You let them peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. When they're talking about peoples, they're not talking about political states. Uh, they're talking about people groups, right? Let all the ethne is the Greek word that we would use. Right? Let all the peoples praise you, O God. So that raises some questions in me. Number one, is God worthy of that kind of celebration? The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Absolutely he is. But let, I mean, let's take a step into the next level of theology here, okay? Before we even start talking about the things he has done, let's just talk about the nature of who he is. Is God worthy of the praise of all peoples everywhere simply by his nature as the good, wise creator king? Absolutely he is. His office as creator, his status as good, the fact that he is God and no one else, all of creation owes him praise. Jesus uh, is receiving praise at one point in the gospel accounts and some Pharisees get on to him. He's like, hey, you're gonna let this happen? And he's like, if they didn't, the rocks would do it. It's owed to me. But oh, it goes far deeper than that, doesn't it? It's not just the nature of who he is, it's also what he has done, right? He has made a way where there was no way. He has paid the sin debt that I owe and that you owe on the cross. He has covered the debt of our sin. He, has, he is doing and has done and will do all things. He is reconciling all things to himself, right? It is not simply who he is, it is also the great thing with which he has done. So I'll ask the question again, is God worthy of the praise of all the peoples of creation? Yes, but that leads to a far weightier second question. Is he currently receiving the praise he so rightly deserves? Nope, not even close, right? Not only 
Not only is God unimaginably huge and beyond our comprehension in his bigness and his goodness, not only has he done this immeasurably good thing that, that deserves the praise and adoration of all peoples, but there are people in this world who don't know what we know, who don't know who he is and what he has done, do they? And so that leads to and even still way to your third question. What in the world are we going to do about it? Right? That's a far more costly question to answer, isn't it? What in the world are we going to do about it? Individually and as a church body, right? God is worthy of the praise of all people across the face of this earth. And according to Psalm 67, there's something that you and I can play a part in fixing that in there. All throughout the scriptures, whether you're in Psalm 67, whether you're in the gospel accounts, whether you're all the way back in Genesis 12, helps us understand the concept that God blesses in order for us to be a blessing that God blesses, bestows, whatever. We can talk about material, we can talk about immaterial. I'm not just talking about your financial stuff, I'm not talking about the money in your pocket or in your bank account, I'm talking about everything he has blessed you with. Your time, your talent, your possessions, whatever. Everything's on the table here. God says, everything I have given you serves a grand purpose to point back to my glory, not yours. It's not given to you because you have earned it. (laughs) Listen, you're worse than Abraham. I'm worse than Abraham. I have blessed you so that you will be a blessing. The reason why serving in the world is a part of our mission statement is because we are trying to flesh out how we make disciples of all nations. And the unbending reality found in Psalm 67 is that the blessings we receive from God are either pointing more people to him or they're pointing people to something far less valuable than him. That's the reality. And so we look for ways to serve. We pour ourselves, whether that be time, talents, or resources into expanding God's glory through the making of disciples of all nations. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to press in, right? To a God who is worthy of far more praise than you or I could ever actually pull off giving to him. Think you brought your best? Scriptures would teach that that's actually not good enough. Oh, but he loves to receive from his people with a humble heart, right? Right? And so we give our best, knowing that he deserves far more, right? But listen, he deserves far more than just me. He deserves more than even the collective we could pull off. He deserves the praise of all people, all nations, tribes, and tongues. And listen, he has promised today that he will one day get that. But it's our job until that day comes to work towards that end, isn't it? So if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus. Listen, God has given you everything in you, around you, and about you for the purpose of making his name famous. So what are we going to do about it? We're either pointing to him or we're 
probably pointing to ourselves, right? That won't end well. Just won't. So if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, we press in. We take stock of how our resources, whether that's material or immaterial, are bearing testimony to his goodness. We take stock of how they're helping us toward the accomplishment of our one job to do. We look for ways to serve in the world because we long desperately for God to receive more and more and more glory. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and that'll be a time for each of us to, to begin to really take account of what's going on in our heart and life, right? We sing for, um, uh, for the period of a song to give you time to really kind of process through, okay, what am I going to do with this? Before you, you get caught up in all the other distractions that life throws at you, right? So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing Follower of Jesus, your job is in that moment to go, okay, is this lining up? And maybe it is. There's a, there's a lot more faithfulness here than what we sometimes give ourselves credit for. Oh, but don't let us overstep that. There's also far more unfaithfulness here than we like to believe sometimes. So we, we take honest stock of our heart and our lives and see if it lines up. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus in his gospel. Listen, some of them are tough. He is not a weekend God who's okay with you hanging out in church on a Sunday and then you go do you. He calls you to call him Lord. Lordship of Jesus brings everything under his sovereignty and control. Maybe you're here today and for the very first time you're going, you know what, it's scary, but I'm in. There's some things I gotta repent of. There's some things I gotta give over to him, but I'm in. If that's you today, we wanna walk with you in that. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing. That'll be a time for you to respond as well. Repent of your sin and come to him as Lord this morning. Let's do that. Father God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Even when they're difficult, even when they call us to something that's far beyond us, God, you deserve the praise and the glory and the adoration of the entire creation. Our sin has fractured things. Our sin, my sin, has broken things here. You promised today that you will ultimately restore, but there is time in between, and so you have called me to press to use the blessings that you've given me, just like you gave Abraham. And bless all the nations of the earth. God, the material stuff is important, but at the end of the day, the greatest blessing we can give is using our time, talents, and resources to point people to you. So help us serve well here. Help us serve well. Would you empty us for your glory? In your name we pray. Amen.